statement in, the, in his commentary in the Bhagavad Gita, he says that the mind becomes disturbed due to lack of an ultimate goal. And then he goes on to say that the, the most satisfying type of goal is how to do good for others. And this is parallel or in harmony with the teaching of Srimad Bhagavatam. Srimad Bhagavatam, as most of you know, the thoroughness is the quintessential writing on bhakti yoga. It starts off by declaring that it's really about selfless service and how to be constantly engaged in the service of God without any motivation. And that that will satisfy the self. And the word used there is supersedity. Presidity means that it's satisfying. And supersedity means that it's utterly or completely satisfying. Su is an intensifier in Sanskrit. And so this is the basis of, of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's teachings and uh, of what the acharyas or the, the followers of Krishna do, is they organize uh, campaigns so that they can spread a system that people can practice anywhere and everywhere. And from, it, it doesn't matter what culture one's from. In fact, this is very clear from the Bhagavad Gita, when Krishna says in the ninth chapter, Namhi Parta Vyatashvita Yepi Sukhapa Yomai Striyo Vaishastata Shudras Tepi Yati Paramgatim. Can you all hear me all right? And that is that whatever a category of human society one comes from uh, is inconsequential. All that matters really is that one has a sincere desire to advance spiritually. And from there, anyone can make progress. Of course, it does help, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, if, if one has a little momentum from a previous life or this life in uh, clean living, because habits are hard to break. But nonetheless, uh, one, one can progress from any situation. What to speak of humans, Bhagavad Gita uh, describes how every living being, whether it be a plant or a human, is part of God. That's what animates every living thing, is actually a particle which is said to be, uh, it, a particle which is not only personal, but which is also part of the supreme personality of Godhead's overall existence. And therefore, the definition of a learned person, a pundit, it has nothing to do with academic qualification or one's ability to, uh, to uh, be fully aware of the political arena, as punditry is now <laughs> often referred to as. But it, it has to do with one's ability uh, to see beyond the, the material situation of each person or a living entity, whether one whether one's seeing a plant, a human, uh, or an animal. In fact, one of the most famous verses of the Bhagavad Gita is Vidya Vinaya Sampane Brahmanega Vihastani Shuni Chaivashupakecha Kandita Sindadarshina 
which says, Krishna says, that a pundit, a learned person, a highly evolved person, is one who sees equally a priest, an outcast, an elephant, a cow, a dog, or a person who eats dogs. Because he sees, she sees, that behind the material apparatus, which is this body, which is really a biomechanical machine, there's a soul animating it. And the particular situation of any living entity in this world has to do with his or her or past activities. And that creates a kind of uh, momentum through which, this is getting a little philosophical, <laughs> which material nature is actually reciprocating benevolently, actually, and simply accommodating the desires of the living entity. The living entity really has freedom. Uh, just as the Supreme ha is called Swarat, Krishna is called Swarat, he's absolutely independent. But we have that minute trace of independence only we're not self-sustaining like God is. So we can get ourselves into trouble by uh, misusing independence. So, a couple things I think I've said. One is that having an ultimate goal is important to fix the mind. And in Bhakti, the description, especially coming from Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is, fix your mind on selfless service. And the best kind of service, how to do good for others. And then one may discern uh, what is real service. For instance, uh, if I serve the body but I, I neglect the soul inside, then although my intention might be there, then what is that saying? The operation was a success, but the patient died. <laughs> and uh, my uh, grandfather, spiritual master, used to say, that's the spiritual master, my spiritual master. He used to say that, let's uh, give the example of saving the dress of a drowning man. So somebody's drowning and then so, I'll save him. And he jumps in and comes back with his coat and he said, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and so this idea that uh, uh, I'll, I'll cater to the, the body or even the mind, although these things aren't necessarily bad, but if one neglects the... But to, to understand that behind the body, behind the mind, is actually a soul that's passing through, is on a continuum, and doesn't address that, and ha doesn't see that context, then, uh, then the good one does may actually be detrimental. It's possible you know, that, that one could, for instance, let's feed the world, and then uh, maybe the kind of food that you're giving them, or the way that which you're gathering the food, uh, might be harmful to the planet, it might be harmful to the people you're giving it to, and you know, if it happens to be evolved living entities, it might disturb their progress too if you prematurely kill them to give to other people. That's the kind of idea that Srila Bhaktisanatha, my grandfather's spiritual master, used to talk about. Be careful, be, be informed, be precise in how you do good for other people. All this coming back to fact that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu wanted to do good for others, he, he, uh, he said would, would happen um, most uh, effectively on a grassroots level. And so this is grassroots. And uh, when the founder of the Hare Krishna movement came to America, he definitely started in the grassroots. Level. 
he, uh, you know, he just he would spend time with people, and he he didn't have a particular place to stay uh, when he came. Uh, that the place he had was really just a temporary arrangement. He had met uh, a gentleman in uh, he had met a, a man in India, uh, and an Indian and had uh, told him that he had his plan to come to the West and teach Krishna consciousness as per the instruction of his guru. And so this man had told his son back in uh, Pennsylvania that, you know, you need to fill out some paperwork to sponsor this sadhu, this spiritual teacher. And, of course, the son had heard that before. Because his father, well-intentioned as he was, was meeting people you know, that thought they'd come to America for various reasons. And so they had filled out the paperwork many times before. And they were really surprised when Prophet showed up. This <laughs> 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 was the whole town of Butler, Pennsylvania. <laughs> that was front page news. But there's an Indian Swami in town. And Prabhupada didn't mind just um, you know, sleeping on whatever uh, you know, bed or you know, offering that they gave to him. And he was inquisitive. He was asking questions, you know. This is first time in America. And he, he was curious about, you know, the way people thought and the kind of habits that they had. And unlike some sadhus who eschew any kind of uh, practice or cultural, you know, habits that are against their um, sensibilities or against the scriptures, he was very accommodating. In fact, in the early days when he started introducing the science of Krishna consciousness to many people, he was dealing ultimately by default with um, many people in the counterculture, the hippie movement, who had really um, decided to uh, give up most of the cultural, cultural norms, like wearing clothes and <laughs> simple things like that. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I mean, that was their, that was their thing. I remember I was there. So. <laughs> and um, you know, Prophet, was, uh, it, it was an anomaly actually, in the sense that everyone was going against cultural norms and and rejecting the status quo and meanwhile he came and it was such a uh, artful way in which he encouraged people to take to spiritual life first telling them about uh, you know benefits based marketing if you do this then everything will work out and later on he started to fine tune uh, their habits and tell them about ways in which they could amend their lifestyle in various ways so that they would get a lot more resonance with the practice of Krishna consciousness. And, and it worked. And that was really uh, the, one of the teachings of uh, the disciples of Chaitanya, which was First, teach people how to fix their minds on God. Because the mind is the central point of all the senses and, our, and, our, and of our existence. And the, the focal point of yoga really is is how to fix the mind on, on the supreme. So yena tena pakari, in one way or another, it says, uh, teach people to fix their minds on God. And later on, uh, other kinds of things can, can be introduced that help people to 
adjust themselves. Is everybody comfortable? Yes. On a scale of 1 to 10, how comfortable are you? If, you need a, if anybody needs a chair, I insist you please sit in a chair. Okay? Don't sit and feel like part of the practice of Krishna consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> to feel uncomfortable. It's not a religion to sit on the floor. Although I was in Chicago once, and I, there was an African-American man who came there to the program. He saw everyone sitting on the floor, and he, he commented that he thought it was a very humble custom. But when Prabhupada, and this is an example of the way he brought Krishna consciousness to the West, I want the first... One of the first uh, buildings that the Krishna Conscious Movement was able to purchase, and that, that was a hard slog. There was no money in the beginning at all. Not that there's much now. But there, there was, uh, you know, it's not, it, it's not a hugely opulent thing. We don't have mega churches generally. Um, but still, when he, could, when, we, when he was able to get some facility in Los Angeles, uh, that church is still there. It's been transformed a bit. But he wanted to keep the pews in there. And, pews, and he said, keep the pipe organ. Don't change the culture. Allow people, you know, don't make it so different that people will, um, you know, just see the external part of it, teach the essential parts. So this is really nice. This is a grassroots um, approach. Is you know, turning your home into an ashram. And interesting, the word ashram, in America, most people say ashram, something like that. Ashram, uh, when most people think of it, it's a, it's a place where people live to practice yoga or something spiritual. The word ashrama comes from the, the um, word shrama. Shrama means to work hard for, for no result. And means like you're working, 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 and I mean, in, in the vision of the Srimad Bhagavatam, uh, shrama means that you're, you're working, but you're not making spiritual advancement. It doesn't matter if you're making, if you're, if you're advancing materially, like you have a good economic situation and it keeps getting better, but you miss the introspection and you miss the connection with God, that's called shrama. And then if you put a, an A in front of a word in Sanskrit, most of the time it reverses the meaning. So you have, you know, typical, atypical. And you have shrama, ashrama, which means you reverse the trend of useless labor. <laughs> and you get some traction in life. And that's, you're supposed to have a base somewhere where you can live uh, without shrama, without having to just be in anxiety about how to, um, you know, make ends meet or, you know, what's the next meeting and all that. So you're supposed to have a little space, like, you all have here. You have a little altar. This place is temple room. It's a nice place too. Nice colors. The floor is looks like Pergo or is it bamboo? I'm not sure. It's hard to tell these days. But whatever it is, it looks nice. Very nice. And there's spiritual pictures around and there's books and it's really nice. It's really nice. So devotees can live together. They can have their jobs and then have a base they come back to where they practice together. And this will be really effective. And then, the next big step is to invite people into the space. And from there, it's, it's remarkable what can happen because it's the spirit, the purity of the spiritual vibration in any place that expands and 
And the reason is, is given in, in the Srimad Bhagavatam. And that is that this there's two different kinds of vibrations, just to make it really um, on the simple side, that are available in the soul. One is the spiritual vibration and the other is material vibration. And the spiritual vibration expands and provides one with spiritual paraphernalia and facility. Just as much as material vibration uh, expands and provides one with uh, material facility. And Prabhupada gives this example in the Bhagavatam. He says that if you want to build a skyscraper building, the materials are already there. You just have to hear about them. Like you might go to Caltech. You're like, yeah, now I know how to do it. Because you heard about it, right? That's, I mean, it's possible. Of course, a spider can build a web without going to Caltech, which always amazes me. But the fact is that any facility or paraphernalia that you need, if you just hear about it, and then you make a few mantras and say, you know, this is the kind of building I want to make, and then from the subtle level of speaking, you start sketching it out in the blueprint, and then you call some people in, and bricks go over there, make a hole here, next thing you know, there's a building. So things get manifest in that way. And so uh, manifesting on the material level starts with sound, and manifesting on the spiritual platform starts with sound also, but there's a different kind of sound, and that spiritual sound, Srimad Bhagavatam uh, is said to be the sound that comes from the highest level of the spiritual world, and Tad Bhagavi Sargo Janatago Vithtovo Yasmin Prati Shlokam Abhadya Bhaktiti says that it's revolutionary. When you, when you um, listen carefully to the sound, you can all move up if you want. I think there's like thousands of people coming in. Hearing spiritual sounds, one will find that one gets more and more facility to practice spiritual life. There may be uh, special guidance provided, um, you know, things that you can use to, to help you advance spiritually. And uh, Krishna says much the same in the Bhagavad Gita, a famous verse in the 10th chapter Kesham Satati Yuktanam, Pachitam Yogam Tanami, Buddhi Yogam Tam, if you're just sincere and you practice, then he said, I'm in your heart and I will give you the intelligence, buddhi, intelligence, to advance spiritually in the Nikhil So congratulations on the grand opening of your ashram. You've been keeping it really nicely, obviously. It's really first class. And now this, this is a big deal that you're inviting people in. And I have to tell you, you know, we had programs in our home in Birmingham for 16 years until it got so big that people complained when we didn't invite them. So they said, no, we can't do it anymore. But a lot of it just moved down to ISV. That's our center down in, in Silicon Valley in, in Mountain View. And, you know, just sort of nicely transferred there and then out into other programs and things. So it spills over. It builds from this position. So really well done. I was thrilled to be here. To be invited. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you.
So please tell me what kind of program you would like to have. Now that I just chewed up about <laughs> half an hour. <laughs> well, we wanted to just start from Canto 1, first chapter, and just do a reading um, okay. as much as possible within an hour. Because okay. I think from now on, what we'd like to do is have it monthly and then okay. work to bi monthly. And um, however many pages you think would be best to do in an hour's time. Okay. Since I'm so late, and I really apologize, there are a couple accidents on the freeway. Um, how much time do you think we have now? Um, we do have to end at 8 o'clock, okay. only because um, there's Palo Alto time, or noise um, curfew. So, whatever you decide to do. And that includes Prasada too, right? Yes. Finishing it up. Mm -hmm. So why don't we why don't we go for the next half hour great. reading and then then you can call for Prashad. Okay. Does okay. that sound good? That's perfect. What I recommend is that um, we start reading the Bhagavad. Is that what you want to read the Bhagavatam? Yes, please. Yeah. We'll read the Bhagavatam starting with a preface. Okay. And um, we can we can go around a little bit to, to hear the preface and also the foreword is also really nice. So we'll do the preface, the foreword, and of course you gotta read the introduction. But we're not gonna finish the introduction tonight, that's for sure. It's really long. And somehow we'll fit in a kirtan before the noise curfew is over is is uh, enforced. Okay. So I'm going to say a mantra that uh, everyone can repeat that is traditional before starting the reading of the Srimad Bhagavatam. In fact, I'll say a few mantras because it's fitting. Uh, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate we're beginning the reading of the Srimad Bhagavatam, the first canto, and we'll begin with Srila Prabhupada's preface, and um, I'll read three paragraphs, and then I'll, I'll pass it along, and then we'll pass the book around so that everyone can read something out loud. Just request you to read as loud as possible so no can hear. Preface. We must know the present need of human society. And what is that need? Human society is no longer bounded by geographical limits to particular countries or communities. Human society is broader than in the Middle Ages and the world's tendency is toward one state or one human society. The ideals of spiritual communism, according to Srimad Bhagavatam, are based more or less on the oneness of the entire human society, nay, on the entire energy of living beings. The need is felt by great thinkers to make this a successful ideology. Srimad Bhagavatam will, will fill this need in human society. It begins, therefore, with the aphorism of Vedanta philosophy, to establish the ideal of a common cause. 
Human society at the present moment is not in the darkness of oblivion. It has made rapid progress in the fields of human comforts, education, and economic development throughout the entire world. But there is a pinprick somewhere in the social body at large, and therefore there are large-scale quarrels even over less important issues. There is need of a clue as to how humanity can become one in peace, friendship, and prosperity with a common cause. Srimad Bhagavatam will fill this need, for it is a cultural presentation for the re-spiritualization of the entire human society. Srimad Bhagavatam should be introduced also in the schools and colleges, for it is recommended by the great student, devoted Prahlad Maharaj, in order to change the demoniac face of society. Kaumara Acharit Pragmyo Parman Bhagavatam Iha Dulabam Manushan Janma Tadapyadruvam Artadam. Disparity in human society is due to lack of principles in a godless civilization. There is God, or the Almighty One, from whom everything emanates, by whom everything is maintained, and in whom everything is merged to rest. Material science has tried to find the ultimate source of creation very insufficiently, but it is a fact that there is one ultimate source of everything that be. This ultimate source is explained rationally and authoritatively in the beautiful Bhagavatam or Srimad Bhagavatam. Srimad Bhagavatam is the transcendental science not only for knowing the ultimate source of everything, but also for knowing our relation with Him and our duty toward perfection of the human society on the basis of this perfect knowledge. It is powerful reading, reading matter in the Sanskrit language, and it is now rendered into English elaborately so that simply by a careful reading, one will know God perfectly well so much so that the reader will be sufficiently educated to defend himself from the onslaught of atheists. Over and above this, the reader will be able to convert others to accepting God as a concrete principle. Srimad Bhagavatam begins with the definition of the ultimate source. It is a bona fide commentary on the Vedanta Sutra by the same author, Srila Vyasadeva, and gradually it develops into nine cantos up to the highest state of God-realization. The only qualification one needs to study this great book of transcendental knowledge is to proceed step-by-step step cautiously and not jump forward haphazardly as with any ordinary book. It should be gone through chapter by chapter, one after another. The reading matter is so arranged with the original Sanskrit text. Its English transliteration, synonyms, translation, and purport so that one is sure to become a God-realized soul at the end of finishing the first nine cantos. The tenth canto is distinct from the first nine cantos because it deals directly with the transcendental activities of the personality of Godhead, Sri Krishna. One, one will be unable to capture the effects of the tenth canto without going through the first nine cantos. The book is complete in 12 cantos, each independent, but it is good for all to read them in small installments, one after another. Keep going, just finish. Keep going? Yeah, finish. 
I must admit my frailties in presenting Srimad Bhagavatam, but still, I am hopeful of its good reception by the thinkers and leaders of society on the strength of the following statement of Srimad Bhagavatam. On the other hand, that literature which is full of descriptions of the transcendental glories of the name, fame, form, and pastimes of the unlimited Supreme Lord is a transcendental creation meant for the bringing about of revolution in the impious life of a misdirected civilization. Such, a transcendent, such transcendental literature, even though irregularly composed, is heard, sung, and accepted by purified men who are thoroughly honest. Om Tat Sat. A.C. Bhaktivedanta So, uh, we'll keep it brief, but let's just see at, at the end of each unit, like this is a preface, if we have some reflections or a question, and we'll keep the discussion. Anything that you heard from the, from the preface that stuck with you, a phrase or concept, or if you want to ask your questions or elaborate something. Um, yes. Reflection. Uh, it's just really amazing that this was written in the 70s, but it's still so relevant, you know, uh, yeah. 30 years later. It was written yesterday. It was just when it was when he mentions about the, the propensity to quarrel and so forth. That was back then. It didn't seem as, as uh, protracted as it is now. Any other thoughts? It's so profound that he uses um, the shlokas from Bhagavatam, almost Bhagavatam everywhere, all throughout the Bhagavatam. Yeah. And also, like this one reminds me of like, uh, there is God or the Almighty One from whom everything emanates, by whom everything is maintained, and in whom everything is merged to rest. Isn't that the same as Om Purnamada? Yeah, very similar. It actually refers to Janmadya Sayataha, which is the first line of the um, of the Bhagavatam itself, but. Very well done because it also can refer to the Om Purnamadapuramida from the Upanishads. It's basically saying the same thing. Janmadya Sayataha is an aphorism given in a, a very important book called the Vedanta Sutra, which is a summarization or a sutraization, uh, giving pithy statements that give philosophical markers about major topics. Each one of them you could write in numerous. Uh, PhD thesis on, and, and so the the first one that comes out in, in the Vedanta Sutra is Janmadya Sayataha, which is a definition of the Supreme Absolute Truth in short, in short, which means that the Supreme Absolute Truth is that from whom everything else emanates, as a, a really simple definition of God, given in Janmadya Sayataha. Anything else? Yeah, can you just uh, elaborate maybe a little bit more on the, on the distinctness of the tenth canto? Yes, uh, the tenth, leading up to the tenth canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, there's a lot of philosophical knowledge. For instance, you'll find uh, 
you'll find in the first canto a kind of introduction to the, the philosophy of Christian consciousness. The, the, especially you'll, the, 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 the first canto open, is an opening scene like in a play. And there's, there are scenes within scenes here. So the opening scene is at Naimacharya, which is a forest uh, where uh, many sages go for uh, seminars. And so this uh, Srimad Bhagavatam is being discussed there. It had been heard by uh, a great sage named uh, Sutta Goswami when it was originally spoken. Uh, the, the original speaking of this took place when the king, the emperor, had been cursed to die in seven days. So he gave up his kingdom. He took it as a, actually a benediction that he was cursed to die. He said, I wouldn't have walked away from this. <laughs> if I had been cursed, so I'm taking it as a chance to, you know, make my break. So, you know, you can imagine if, you know, our president suddenly went to the Bank of the Potomac and <laughs> just sat down and said, when you become self-realized, you'd be really surprised. There's a, there's a way in which the, the Pritchett, uh, he went and sat down in the Ganges, gave up his royal insignias and everything like that, and he just said, this is it, I'm going to focus wherever. And he wanted advice. And there were a lot of people that came there to give advice. And then this self-effulgent teacher, Shukadeva Goswami, entered the arena and everybody stood up as a sign of respect. Self-effulgent meaning they recognized that here's the most qualified person to speak this. He was a 16-year-old at the time. And there's a long story I won't go into about Shukadeva. But the, the fact is that he, Shukadeva sat down and he spoke the 18,000 verses of the Bhagavatam to Pariksha. In that assembly, Sutta Goswami was there. He heard it. Now later, he's speaking this again to the sages at Naimasharya, and they're listening. So that's how the opening scene goes. And they're asking questions. One of the questions they ask at the very beginning of the Bhagavatam is, what is the ultimate good for the human soul, or for the soul, and for every soul? And, and how do we enact that for the world? How do, how do we do the, the greatest good for the most number of people? That's where they were, it was not a commercial enterprise. They were thinking about how, how they could do well for people everywhere. That's their main intention. And then the questions, actually, those questions act as the springboard for the rest of the Bhagavatam because they start getting answered everywhere uh, throughout the, the rest of the cantos. And then you get into the second canto, which starts talking about the universe, what, what the uni how the universe is structured, what is it, where did it come from, and so forth. And uh, more philosophical topics come up in the third canto, fourth canto, fifth canto. Again, is the universe, but a lot of um, a lot of everything is meant to kind of orient us towards the tenth canto to understand that. Uh, when God comes to the world, he's not an ordinary person. Because although he has his original form is personal, uh, ultimately he's a Dwaya Gyantatva. God is everything, and everything is within God, but he also maintains a separate existence. And to prepare the reader for understanding the, uh, the activities of Krishna in Vrindavan, and, and the other places where he performs activities. The Srimad Bhagavatam is careful to uh, give us a lot of background. For instance, we're not our bodies. We're actually the soul within the body, many of the things I said earlier. And that uh, Krishna uh, has a completely transcendental spiritual body. He's not forced to come to nature. 
So when you come to the tenth canto, then you've got uh, an explanation of the lineages of uh, many dynasties, uh, kingly dynasties that uh, go for for tens of thousands of years, uh, entering into the appearance of uh, Krishna. So that's like the main part of the play is in the tenth canto <laughs> when he appears. And then it starts to describe his birth, his activities, and uh, that's um, important according to the Srimad Bhagavatam because uh, the variety of the material world is temporary. It's a reflection of the spiritual world. And ultimately I'm, I'm attracted to variety. I want relationship. I want emotion. I can't uh, just give things up. And unless I have a, the, the positive replacement for the temporary material world, by default I'll, I'll naturally be attracted here. So therefore Bhagavatam says, unless one hears Srimad Bhagavatam uh, all the way through and then comes to the tenth canto and understands that there is actually a spiritual activity, a spiritual form, a spiritual emotion, and becomes uh, really uh, interested in it, then there's no giving up the material world because you have to have a higher taste. You can't just say, I quit, because you get dragged back in again. Mm -hmm. So that's why the tenth canto is so important. And if you hear you know, one uh, canto at a time until you get to the tenth canto, your mind will be, and heart will be prepared to hear, okay, this is not ordinary. It's not just, like sometimes it, people paint pictures of Krishna in, in, in Vrindavan, and they just seem licentious. Mm -hmm. Is like, what you know? This is just a boy. This is ordinary activities. Like, what do I care about this? So the first nine cantos will make you care. <laughs> Does that help? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you so much. Since I took so long on that one, let's um, let's move to the next um, item, which is the foreword. And yes. Yes. When you were conducting this, did you suggest that we have reflections after each section that we are reading? Or should we just, just read right through it and just... It's okay. I think that what you should do is, is you should set a, uh, a goal of how many pages you want to read according to you know what's reasonable within the time, and then budget in a few uh, reflections. That's what we do at Govardhan. We try to make sure we're on track. Because some years we used to like take so many reflections that pretty soon they're like, hey, we're here for two and a half hours. We just read two pages. Yeah. So you have, to, you have to have a moderator who goes, okay, time to move on. You know? And unfortunately, I'm the moderator. <laughs> you shouldn't give me that task while I don't keep talking. Okay. So let's do the forward. And now, who would like to go next? Yeah. There's we a lot. We don't have a <laughs> you don't have a forward in that book? Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of Sanskrit uh, terms in there, so let's see how it goes. And yeah. if you need help, we'll just we'll just fill in for you. Okay. Uh, no, I don't have any brilliant as the sun, and it has arisen just before the departure of Lord Just Krishna. after. 
to his, um, to his own abode, accompanied by religion, knowledge, etc. Persons who have lost their vision due to the dense darkness of ignorance in the age of Kali shall shed shall light from this Puranya, uh, this timeless wisdom of India is expressed in the Vedas, ancient Sanskrit texts that touch upon all fields of human knowledge. Originally preserved through oral tradition, the Vedas were first put into writing 5,000 years ago by Srila Vasudeva, the literary incarnation of God. After compiling the Vedas, Vasudeva set forth their essence in the aphorisms known as Vedanta Sutras. Srila Bhagavatam is Sri just one little clue about reading the, the transliteration. This this can help immensely, actually. When you see an A uh -huh. with a uh, line over it, just pronounce it as an A, but uh, hold it twice as long. Okay. And then you'll have great success in, in Sanskrit. <laughs> one of the yeah. tricks. Okay. Yeah, there it is. Bravo. <laughs> uh, commentary on his own Vedanta Sutras. It was written in the maturity of his spiritual life under the direction of Narada Muni, his spiritual master, referred to as the ripened fruit of the tree of Vedic literature. Srimad <laughs> Bhagavatam is the most complete and authoritative exposition of the Vedic knowledge. After compiling the, the Bhagavatam, Vyasa imparted the synopsis of it to his son, the sage Sukadeva Gosvami. Sukadeva Goswami subsequently recited the entire Bhagavatam to Maharaja Parishkrit um, in an assembly of learned, learned saints in, on the bank of the Ganges in Hastinapura, now Delhi. Maharaja Parishkrit was the emperor of the world and was a great Rajasi, saintly king. Having received a warning that he would die within a week, he renounced his entire kingdom and retired to the bank of the Ganges to fast until death and receive spiritual enlightenment. The Bhagavatam begins with the Emperor's sober inquiry into Sudadeva Goswami. You are the spiritual master of great saints and devotees. I am therefore begging you to show the way of perfection for all persons, and especially for one who is about to die. Please let me know what a man should hear, chant, remember, and worship, and also what he should not do. Please explain all this to me. Would you like to go? Sukadeva Goswami. Goswami's answer to this question and numerous other questions posed by Maharaja Harakasit concerning everything from the nature of the self to the origin of the universe held the assembled sages in rapt attention continuously for the seven days leading up to the king's death. The sage Sutta Gosvami who was present in the assembly with Sukha Deva Gosvami. That's right, that is good. Recited Srimad Bhagavatam. Later repeated the 
Bhagavatam before a gathering of sages in the forest of Namasari Nya. Those sages concerned about the spiritual welfare of the people in general had gathered to perform a long, continuous chain of sacrifices to counteract the graduating influence of the incipient age of Pali. In response to the sage's request that he speak for the essence of the Vedic wisdom, Sutta Gosvami repeated from memory the entire 18,000 verses of Srimad Bhag Bhag <laughs> Bhagavatam Perfect. as spoken by the Sukadeva Gosvami to the Baharaja Barakasi. <laughs> the reader the reader of Srimad Bhagavatam hears Sutta Gosvami relate the questions of the Maharaja Parakisit and the answers of the Sukha Deva Gosvami also. Sutta Gosvami sometimes responds directly to the questions put by by Sunaku Shanaka. Sa, sa, Sahunaka Sahunaka See. The AU combination is like a diphthong. It's like Ao Sanaki Su. Rishi. Rishi, sorry. Rishi. The spokesman for the sages gathered at the Naima Sariana. One therefore simultaneously hears two dialogues one between Maharaja Parasi and Sukha Deva Gosvami on the bank of the Ganges, and another of the of another at <coughs> Naimasariya between Sutta Gosvami and the sages at Naimasari Naimasaranya forest. forest headed by Sunaki Saunaki Saunaki Shaunaka and when you see the Rishi, that that S with the dot under it, it's pronounced like the German Schrecken, like Schrecken G Deutsch. So you see SH is it's a very uh so like the SH sound there. Good. Furthermore, while instructing King Harasi Shukandeva Gosvami often relates historical episodes and gives accounts of lengthy philosophical discussions between such great souls as Naharada, Muni, and Gusudeva. With this understanding of the history of the Bhagavatam, Bhagavatam, the reader will easily be able to follow its intermingling of dialogues and events from various sources. Since philosophical wisdom, not chronological order, is most important in the text, one need only be attentive to the subject matter of Srimad Bhagavatam to appreciate fully its profound message. Okay, Anisha. Anisha. The translators of this edition compared the Bhagavatam to sugar candy 
Wherever you taste it, you will find it equally sweet and relishable. Therefore, to taste the sweetness of the Bhagavatam, one may begin by reading any of its volumes. After such introductory taste, however, the serious reader is best advised to go back to the first canto and then proceed through the Bhagavatam, canto after canto, in its natural order. The, this edition of the Bhagavatam is the first complete English translation of this important text with an elaborate commentary, and it is the first widely available to the English-speaking public. The first 12 volumes, Canto 1 through Canto 10, Part 1, are a product of the scholarly and devotional effort of His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, the founder acharya of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, and the world's most distinguished teacher of Indian religious and philosophical thoughts. His consummate Sanskrit scholarship and intimate familiarity with Vedic culture and thought as well as the modern way of life combined to reveal the West a magnificent explosion of this important classic. After the departure of Srila Prabhupada from this world in 1977, his monumental work of translating and annotating Srimad Bhagavatam has been continued by his disciples, Hiradayananda Das Goswami and Gopi Paradhanitana Das. Readers will find this work of value for many reasons. For those interested in classical roots of Indian civilization, it serves as a vast reservoir of detailed information on virtually every one of its aspects. For students, comparative philosophy and religion, the Bhagavatam offers a penetrating view to, into the meaning of India's profound spiritual heritage. To sociologists and anthropologists, the Bhagavatam reveals the practical working of peaceful and scientifically organized Vedic culture, whose institutions were integrated on the basis of a highly developed spiritual worldview. Students of literature will discover the Bhagavatam to be a masterpiece of majestic poetry. For students of physiology, the text provides important perspectives on the nature of consciousness, human behavior, and philosophical study of identity. Finally, to those seeking spiritual insight, the Bhagavatam offers simple and practical guidance for attainment of the highest self-knowledge and realization of absolute truth. The entire multi-volume text presented by Bhaktivedanta Book Trust promises to occupy a significant place in the intellect, culture, and spiritual life of modern men for a long time to come. The publisher. Well, the introduction is lengthy. Um, Prabhupada's mindset, as he told himself when he came to America, since he was already um, seven years old, was that, uh, and he had already suffered two heart attacks on the way here, on the, on the uh, freighter that he took. He got free passage on a cargo ship, because he knew the owner of the company. And so uh, he was eager to uh, summarize much of the philosophy uh, in as many places as possible, just in case he didn't finish. So what you find in the introduction here to the Srimad Bhagavatam is, is a um, summary of the teachings of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu that I mentioned earlier before, who I mentioned earlier before. 
and uh, and then it leads into the first uh, canto. So um, because it's 25 after, we still have to take prasadam. So maybe now's a good time to have kirtan. Okay. But before we do, um, you can put your Bhagavatam on this um, platform and you can just stand up for a minute. Because everyone, before we have a, a kirtan, some chanting, just stretch out a little bit. There's some space here you can put the books on. <coughs> it's part of the culture is to keep the Bhagavatam in a respectful place, don't put it on the floor. And please just stretch out for a minute so you can decompress. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu taught a simple method of connecting with the Supreme Personality of Godhead through the chanting of uh, the divine names of God. And this is a, um, a method that he taught wherever he traveled. It's an age-old process of um, very dynamic meditation, and it's called Sankirtan. So Kirtan comes from the word Kirti, which means to make famous. Kirti means fame. So Kirtan means the way in which you're glorifying somebody, and some means together. So Sankirtan means that uh, you do this kind of glorification or meditation as a group. And in the, the chanting process, uh, there's a leader or a group of leaders who will sing the mantra out loud and then everyone else in the group will listen and then repeat the mantra and we go call and response. And so let's do that. There are a couple of introductory mantras that I'll start with because in the way of approaching the, the, the main mantra that we chant is called the Maha Mantra, well, we show respect to those who brought it to us first and because it's like a deity. It's a sound deity, actually. And so when we approach the deity, we're respectful and, and show gratitude, appreciation, and respect to the teachers who have passed it down. So I'll say that um, the mantra that is uh, respects my guru, and then, uh, and who's also the, the founder of, the, of this organization, and then I'll say the, the mantra that respects Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, whom I've mentioned several times as uh, beginning this uh, movement of Parupakar, doing good for others, through spreading spiritual knowledge. We started this over 500 years ago. And then we'll go into the call and response for the Hare Krishna Mahamantra. Yeah, I was in Japan recently, and we were at the home of some very wealthy diamond merchants, and they invited friends over. And we had a kirtan, and it got louder and louder, and then the police came. <laughs> and they said, it's not a very Krishna program until the police come. Because <laughs> it seems that it's, it's kind of a loud religion. You know? There's a lot of chanting. 
Uh, have your neighbor, your neighbors have heard here. Okay. So, um, are you going to say for Prashad? Um, if you feel for me. <laughs> sure. Is it time now, or do, do you We're want? Ready. Okay. Do you mind conducting the prasadam first? I don't mind. So, prasadam is uh, a very important aspect of bhakti yoga. Because we are what we eat, not just in body and mind, but also in spirit. According to Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, that uh, if one prepares food with the idea of offering it, making it a, an offering of love, it's, it's a little different than even saying grace. You, know, you get food and you say grace, which is really nice. To say, you know, this is coming from, from mercy and, and it's from a divine source and we appreciate it. But the, in devotional cooking, there's a way in which the, the cooks are thinking all the time that this is, a, they're making it for Krishna. And so they make an offering and they, they offer it with prayers to so please accept this. And then after that, um, it's called prasadam. So there's a transformation in the food. So it takes the same vibrations as the mantra and of the spiritual world. So it's kind of an ideal situation since uh, we all have to eat. And there's a prayer that we say before uh, taking prasadam. And that is that, uh, and it's written by one of the great teachers of bhakti, named Bhaktivinoda Thakur. Um, and he uh, said the following prayer, that the senses are the networks of the past, unless they're controlled, they just take us at any place, and ultimately this body ends up in death. And he said of all the senses, the tongue is the most difficult to control. He said, but this prasadam, spiritual food, is especially given to us as... Uh, as a benediction from God so that we can control the tongue. And so he said, please let us take this prasadam with full consciousness of, of its spiritual power and in that way uh, perform our practice of bhakti yoga. And so um, everyone who appreciates or agrees with these ideas and part or in whole, please say Hare Krishna. So now, um, there'll be some special arrangements so everyone can take prasadam. And while it's being served out, uh, let's see if there's any questions. Yes. How is it that the Maha Mantra makes the atmosphere so spiritual? It, it changes everything. It the transforms. Maha is the, is the Hare Krishna mantra. We just chanted Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Well, it's a sample uh, and an example of what I was talking about before about there being material sound and spiritual sound. So, according to the theory of mantra, the Hare Krishna mantra is quintessentially a, a spiritual sound or the quintessential uh, spiritual sound vibration. It's a special mantra. Uh, what makes it special? One thing is that it, it contains uh, divine names of God. Hare means 
the energy of the Lord, and it's written in the vocative form in Sanskrit, which means like it's an open prayer saying, uh, Oh my Lord, O oh energy of the Lord, please engage me in your service. Krishna means the all-attractive. Uh, the the uh, definition, one of the definitions of Bhagavan, or the supreme uh, personality of God is that he's full of, of all beauty, all knowledge, all renunciation, all strength, all fame. And so when you say Krishna, it means the attractor and uh, the all-attractive one. And Rama means the highest spiritual happiness. And so it's called Paramakshara like the formula of words is um, the most uh, enticing and purifying of, of combinations of spiritual words and syllables. And so that mantra, especially when it comes down, when it's passed down through a chain of, of, of teachers, to the, um, it maintains its, its purity of, and maintains its purity of purpose, then it has a special effect on the chanters and the hearers. Thank you for asking the question. I have a question. Yes. Um, I've been trying on and off for a couple of years to cook prasadam or to offer my food, but eat for some time I succeed in some way, but it ends up being just kind of external and I fall off and I start eating for myself only. Uh -huh. um, is this something that happens? Is this a common thing? Or is it just yeah. something that develops? Remember in that prayer, the tongue is the most gracious. <laughs> even that one extra step you cook and then you offer it. Even if it's a simple offering, the tongue's going, come on, <laughs> hurry up. Yeah. Let's just take it now. It helps more when you're in an ashram and there's other people around. Because then you sort of, like, hey, aren't you going to offer that? <laughs> you know, if you're by yourself, you know, the hand just like grabs the bag or whatever it is. It's like, yeah, I'll say a prayer. Um, thanks. Uh, so, you know, the, there's a little bit of um, kind of intentionality that it helps when you're in association. And then when you're, if you live in a temple ashram, you know, that's all that's available is prasad. Yeah, yeah. So it helps to have association. So whatever you're doing is nice. Just do the best you can. Thank you. Any other things? Or reflections? Reflection just means anything you heard or experienced that you want to reflect back. Ben, have you been to these programs before? You're Thomas. Thomas, have you been to the programs? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I've been to, um, like, we usually go to the, our Sundays, we usually spend in the Bhakti Center. Oh, downtown San Francisco? Yeah, yeah, not in San Francisco. And Ben and Victoria, you all go down there? Uh, I, we've been going, and Ben's been once with us. I've been once. But he's, I'm the new dude. <laughs> when he was a bit younger, he went to New Zealand. Right? In New Zealand? I did, actually, yes. You did, huh? That's amazing. Yeah, it was, uh, 35 years ago. 35 wow. years ago. When he was five. I was going to say he was a toddler. <laughs> Fantastic. Wow, great. Mm -hmm. Give us instruction. What should we do now? So, the plan is going to be that we're going to do ready-made plates, and we're going to bring it out to you folks. Is that okay with everybody? It's fine. Yeah. We'll just ask a second, and we'll just carry out the go along. 
Thank you very much. Not to the Armarman. Not to the Armarman. Not to the Armarman. Hey, not to the Armarman. Not to the Armarman. Not to the Armarman. Not to the Armarman.